in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my other host and my good friend, right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well this evening. Uh, I'm excited today, Chad. you know why that is? Why is that, Russell? Because first time ever, we have a doctor on the show. Oh my goodness, we are underqualified for But this. it's the second time on the show. <laughs> so, uh, returning to us, uh, if you may have heard him on the graduate episode, we have Mark Gardner joining us today. How are you doing, Dr. Gardner? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be back. I'm, I'm emphasizing this uh, a lot because you recently... How, 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 how long was this effort? Uh, it was six years in the making. Graduated about four weeks ago, so I guess it is official. That's what they tell me. And for Oscar season, which we're in, you know, doing these award-winning movies with a lot of substance, but that's why we called in the uh, the big guns. Uh, you're a professor, right? I am. Yes, I teach communication, film classes, writing classes, whatever they pay me to do, I will teach. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm just now I'm picturing them having to do the Heimlich maneuver. Like it's like, yes, that would go very, very poorly <laughs> if that ever happened. This is where you use your film knowledge and use Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh right, right, oh. right. <laughs> Not that kind of a doctor. Or what about Bob? There Even better, like just you throw them on the couch and use your knee, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah I up, like it. Jump up and down on their back. That's how it works, right? I'm more about philosophizing, so I try to analyze what was actually causing the. Okay. The pain and turmoil and being no help at all. So <laughs> so let's get to know you just a little better. What's the last movie you saw? Last movie I saw was The Irishman. So you Scorsese. had a block of time. <laughs> I did. I planned it out weeks in advance, uh, all four hours. And then I watched the interview special afterwards. So it was probably about four and a half hours in total. How many wow. bathroom breaks did you need? I did not count. Probably more than one. Probably. <laughs> Um, just one. wait till the director's cut someday lands. No, I feel like that was the director's <laughs> cut. Netflix gave him all the rights to do whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> so. so what movie did you not like the first time you watched it, but then changed your mind on it, and now you like it? So my initial reaction is probably going to go with Pulp Fiction. I hated that movie in high school. Um, saw it several times with friends who loved it, and they always tried to convince me that it was good. It wasn't until probably a few years ago that I watched it and actually enjoyed it. I won't say that I loved it, but I liked it more than I did. Coming from down here, moving up right. here. And I'm a huge yeah. Tarantino fan, so it was always like, why are, why is this the one that I don't like when everyone seems to feel yeah. the opposite? Yes. So. You're, you're in good company here with that movie. It's uh, true. I'm, I'm actually, I've only seen it once uh, and I didn't like it. But wonderful. it's funny that you say that because I actually watched The Graduate. I saw it on the AFI Top 100 Comedies list, and just like Brian did on the episode, I was like, this isn't funny. I'm upset with this. Yeah. I don't like this movie. And then I put it down for a long time, and I came back and did it with you, and I was like, 
what's my deal? This is a really good movie. <laughs> yeah, it was The Conjuring for me. You begged me to see that movie again. I was so annoyed the first time. I was just in a bad mood, I think. And the second time, I really enjoyed it. The first time, I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Uh, that's why it's important to give movies a second chance sometimes. Uh, you know, just your mood can't affect it. So you got a headache. I mean, you, you ate something wrong. I mean, uh, it's cloudy outside. I don't know what it is. But, uh, it, you know, it's, it's why we brought to the movies again. Uh, what was the first movie you personally started your collection with? Like, which movie did you acquire first? Well, I was, I've been a movie fan freak my whole life, so I was always gifted movies for Christmas. But the first one I probably bought for myself as a DVD was um, probably the Star Wars trilogy, um, episode four, five, and six. Excellent choice. Oh, that's a full great... screen edition. It was before I got into the widescreen. Yeah. This, was this pre-special edition? <laughs> it was definitely pre-special edition. Well, those are very important to own then. Yeah. Hold on true. to those. It's true. I do have them. So you don't have to have the singing, uh, dancing lady in right. Return of the Jedi. That's oh, true. Jedi rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't need to see Jabba the Hutt move. Like, just okay keep, keep, keep them seated. <laughs> Stationary. Yeah. I like the idea that, I like the idea that they have to, like, push him right. around. So like, someone's like, job was I, to move him. You're right. I, I, it's much funnier if he's so slothly and he has to be carted around. Um, what film location would you like to go to? Film location. So I would say I really enjoy the uh, locations in the movie Garden State. If you remember that one, I'm thinking of like the void. So is this New Jersey then? Yeah, so it is definitely New Jersey. I assume they filmed. This in seems New very Jersey. attainable for you. Very <laughs> random. I know. Bold choice, New Jersey. <laughs> but I have this picture of watching the movie for the first time and being in awe of this trash void that part of the film takes place in, and it's just like this big crater of trash and I think that would be really cool to go see wow great off the wall answer didn't see that coming <laughs> Kevin Smith is very happy right now yeah he is he's an avid listener to our podcast oh. calls in all the time We all the time <laughs> Kevin you still can't come on not yet I'm thinking mine be and I'm such a Bond fan as I've stated many times I would want to go to the uh, mountain resort from uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service I also like to ski so I would like to ski there mm. but also that's a real resort and it just seems like a great place to go visit that was my favorite level in the video game that's all my context for that <laughs> what about you man i'm going to hobbiton in oh in so shire in new zealand yeah absolutely oh that's a whole wonderful you're much better answers than mine yeah. <laughs> going to new jersey going to new oh, here's, here's the good news i'm very unlikely to make it to the, to the alps whereas you're very very possible you're touching like you're at the next door neighbor state it's very close that's so, true yes all right um so what movie is it we're doing today chad we are doing 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's right. This movie does very well in the box office. It grosses $108.9 million, placing it at number two on the year. And it comes in behind Jaws, which Jaws, like, destroyed the box office. So, I mean, there are years where this could have been number one because Jaws made bank. And it comes in ahead of the movie Shampoo, which I haven't seen. <laughs> Somehow, Jaws, Cuckoo's Nest, Shampoo. Very diverse year in movies. <laughs> um, IMDb gives One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest an 8.7. The critics of Rotten Tomatoes love it. They give it a 94%. And the audience score, if possible, loves it even more at 96%. 
and this movie gets some awards uh, and some award attention. It's nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Brad Dourif, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. And it came away with some wins as well. It got Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress for Lewis Fletcher, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Director, Milos Foreman, and Best Picture. So that's, uh, that's cleaning up the big ones. Actually, I'll, and I'll say that this is one of three movies that have won those five awards, and those have been uh, the main five awards that they win. It came up, uh, uh, happened one night with a um, film noir in the 30s that won all five of those same awards, and then Silence of the Lambs was the next one. Those are the only three movies that have won wow, all I, five of those. I love Silence of the Lambs. I didn't have any mm-hmm. idea that it was able to uh, come away with that much hardware. It did. Picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Huh. And not to be outdone, the Golden Globes, well, they have been outdone by the Oscars, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, Golden Globes, the other the other awards that uh, we'll mention here is Best uh, Motion Picture for a Drama, Best Director Motion Picture for Milos Forman, Best Actor best actor in a Motion Picture Drama, Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama, Best Screenplay, and uh, Best New Star of the Year, which that one went to Brad Dourif. So pretty much carbon copy of all the awards that it won in the Oscars it carried over to the Golden Globes, which never seems to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel like... If one zigs, the other one must zag. Well, the Oscars pushed back a month. They used to be um, three or four weeks after the Globes. Yeah. Um, but since they're like two months after, so they want to distinguish themselves a little bit more. Yeah. I, I, I don't know when I started noticing, but maybe it was like La La Land when it like, came out with the Golden Globe, and it's just like, then it's just like the Oscars are like, no, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And then like, it just was one of those things where I, and then I started to notice, I was like, oh, the Golden Globes is almost like a kiss of death. Like, if you want an Oscar, maybe you shouldn't win the Golden Globes. <laughs> Um, and then the AFI, the American Film Institute, rates this movie uh, at number 20 in their top 100 movies in 1998. They revisited that in 2007, and they knocked it all the way down to 33, but that's still really impressive. And let's talk about it a little bit more. Mark, had you seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before? Yes, I've seen it uh, many times. I um, probably watched it first when I when I was in high school. I tried to watch all the Best Picture winners um, from the beginning of time. I guess, well, I guess since the beginning of the awards show, and uh, so that would have been during that time. I read the book in college, and I took a film adaptation course in college, in which we studied the book and the film as well. So yeah, it's, but it had it's been a while. Um, so did you go book first and then movie, or did you go movie first then book? Movie first, then book, and then movie again. Uh-huh. And that was probably 15 years ago. So a book sandwich. Book sandwich, yeah, exactly. Okay, <laughs> it's a good book too. Which yeah, we can talk yeah. about also. Very different. And what's mm-hmm. it like coming back? To, well, sorry, what were your expectations going in that time? The first time. First time, I didn't really have any. I, I was literally watching the best pictures chronologically, so I can't remember what 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 one before or after it. But shampoo? Um, it wasn't shampoo. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I wasn't. I, I yeah I, I wasn't expecting anything I was just interested in the accolades and and understanding more about that so what about you Chad had you seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before no I'd never seen it so new adventure for me what was it like coming into it as a first timer I was nervous because it's billed as a comedy drama and every time I see Oscar nominated comedy drama I think of Sideways and I get a little bit angry. Again, I didn't know this was labeled as a comedy. It's for the better that I didn't know that. I wouldn't call this a comedy. No, I would not either. It's a good movie. It had some funny things happen, but it is not funny. This is such a repeat of some of the things that we said before in the last time (laughs) of The Graduate. uh, That's true. So did did you enjoy it? I did. It really caught me off guard. I don't want to go into too much, but I I had a good time. That's great. Good time may be a wrong phrase, but... (laughs) 
it was impactful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember my mom. My mom makes good recommendations throughout the years, and she. Uh, I think I might have been down on Jack Nicholson, saying, uh, you know, he doesn't really act. He just kind of shows up in his Jack Nicholson, whether he's at the Laker game, whether he's in as good as it gets. Even Joker, he painted his face, and he's just Jack Nicholson. And I always kind of felt like uh, maybe he's a little bit overrated. And my mom said, "You got to see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." I was like, "All right, I'll check that out." And she was right because he was good in this, and uh, he did impress me in this one, as well as the movie was great. Good suggestion from my mom on that one. Mary and I watched this when we were in college, and I hadn't watched it since. But I mean, I it stuck with me. I remembered a lot of stuff because there's a lot of profound moments in it, and it's. Deep cutting, maybe? Is a good way of putting it? Yep. It, it, it imprinted on me. Yeah. And uh, it was really interesting to return to because I had time to slow down and take note of the other characters for the first... Like, because you watched the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed it so much more. There's a lot of there's a lot of good content there, which we're about to get into. Right. But, I, can't, I can't say that I really picked up on any of the social commentary aspects of the film the first I didn't time know. or two. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was enjoyable this time around. Just like every episode, we're going to spoil this movie, so from here on out, there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so if you haven't seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, do yourself a big favor, watch it, and then enjoy the rest of this episode. We'll be back after this. Now, here to present the Academy Award for Best Movie Podcast, the Academy Award winner, Jimmy Stewart. Every year, movie fans flock in abundant numbers to the wonderful movie podcast. The Academy Award is proud to honor this important medium tonight. It blesses our ears. So, so what, what gives with this movie? Podcast business. What is a podcast anyway? James, just stick to the script. Right, huh? I don't see what's so special about him. If I want to listen to opinionated people yak about movies, I'd have a seat at my in-law's house for dinner. Anyhow, here are the outstanding... Nominees for Best Movie Podcast. Steven Spielberg Explains Movies. James Lipton's Favorite Curse Word. Siskel and Ebert's Two Thumbs Up, One Metal Finger. Hi, that's not nice. Retro Movie Roundtable. Great films of Judge Reinhold. There's an entire podcast dedicated to the works of Judge Reinhold? I mean, he's a swell guy and all, but golly. I don't have. I don't even have my own podcast here. Judge Reinhold is one of his own. James, just give the award now. Get off. Well, well, all right, all right. The Oscar for Best Movie Podcast goes to the Retro Movie Roundtable. How about that, everybody? Give it up for the Retro Movie Roundtable. Wow. Oh my gosh. Um. John, Brian, and I want to thank the millions of listeners, all of the high-stakes investors who made this effort possible. Uh, Thanks to all the presidential supporters we have to help promote the show and the big-name actors who have helped uh, get our name out there. We mostly want to thank all the fans who go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and any other fine podcast provider. And uh, particularly the fans who take 20 seconds of their precious time to subscribe, rate, and review and comment on the show. Those fans who like us on Facebook and write to us at RetroMovieRoundTableYahoo.com, you're the reason we make this show. Thank you. Take care of yourselves and watch more movies. And we're back. Now, 
there will be spoilers that lie ahead, so this is your final warning. Now, Mark, someone hasn't seen this movie since 1975. Why don't you refresh people's memory? Absolutely. I would start off by saying One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is a story that introduces us to our protagonist of Randall Patrick McMurphy, or R.P. McMurphy, a man who just transferred from a state, state prison where he was serving time for violence, assault, and statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl. Um, his transfer to the mental institution, we learn, is due to his inability to follow rules in jail and his tendency to create chaos for the people around him. The prison ultimately gave up dealing with him and just sent him to the mental health professionals and hoped that he would learn how he should behave. The nursing staff of the ward, led by the cold-hearted nurse Ratchet, also, um, uh, well, any of the staff are not phased by his presence and try their best to create a normal routine for him to fall into. It becomes very clear that every minute on the ward is kind of a highly controlled environment and supervised by the staff and the patients have very little outlet to express themselves individually. So as McMurphy becomes acclimated to his new surroundings, we're introduced to the patients of the ward who would inevitably turn into his friends. A majority of these patients we learn are there voluntarily. And while some show distinct signs of mental and behavioral issues, as we get to know them more and more, we begin to question whether any of these men are actually crazy, and that would be in air quotes, crazy. Um, McMurphy's presence in the ward begins a series of events to shake things up to make life on the ward more exciting. He tries to unsuccessfully get nurses to change the schedule from listening to music to be able to watch the uh, game one of the World Series. Um, he plays a regular game of poker where he's clearly the best player and ultimately stealing money and cigarettes from his friends. On the day of a planned field trip, McMurphy, who was not allowed to attend, breaks out of the ward, steals the school bus full of patients, and drives them to the docks where he finds a boat and takes everyone on a fishing trip. But each of these outbursts have kind of severe punishments as consequences, and as the events get more and more serious, so do his punishments as the staff begins electroshock therapy on him to see if this helps to normalize his behavior. Uh, the climax of the film sees McMurphy sneak girls and alcohol into the ward one night, and he and the patients have an all-night party in which the patients begin to resemble normal, normal behaviors for the first time. Billy, the youngest patient the, and verbal stutterer, spends his night having intercourse with one of the women at the request of McMurphy. Um, the next morning, the staff comes to find everyone passed out and the ward a uh, complete mess. Billy is found with the woman, and Nurse Ratchet jumps on this opportunity to publicly shame him for what he did. Billy soon thereafter commits suicide based on the guilt he feels, and McMurphy is held ultimately responsible. Uh, McMurphy goes through an extreme amount of shock therapy as his punishment, and when he comes back to the ward, shows no signs of the same person that he once was. In fact, he would be considered more of a vegetable than a person at this point. A fellow patient named Chief sympathizes with his state and smothers him with a pillow to put him out of his misery right before breaking out of the ward himself through an homage to McMurray's original, McMurphy's original plan to escape. The story asks the audience to examine how we define what it means to be crazy and how institutions and systems get their power over us by telling us how to behave. It's a story of friendship, of sanity, and unraveling the consequences that happen when people step out of line. Well, well done. done. Yeah, that was awesome. Now, Chad, are you a fan of the story here? To the extent I can be of government control, keeping you in line and refusing to let you out, which is played out in real life situations, too. People have intentionally, I think it was a reporter, intentionally had themselves committed and then tr 
they were normal and tried to get out and couldn't and struggled with it. So it's uh it it's heartbreaking in that you know it happened in their time and it still happens today. Absolutely. Uh, now, Mark, you had read the book. Let's talk about the book versus movie just a little bit. I mean, because uh, the author, Ken Keasley, was pretty bitter oh, man. about it. Uh, he had <laughs> some pretty say, savage words. To say the least. Yeah, I haven't seen this since uh, maybe The Shining, actually. Uh, King didn't like that either. So this is uh, another Jack Nicholson movie. E.B. E. White and Charlotte's Web. Oh, yep, yep. Uh, Travers with, uh, uh, P.L. Travers with uh, Mary Poppins. Okay. Hmm. But uh, some pretty scathing words here from, from Ken Keasley. What, what do you feel like, having read the book, the big parting in the road is? I mean, it's a huge, from, an, from the structure of the narrative, it's entirely different. Right. The book is told from the perspective and the voice of Chief. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells about the, all of the events that are happening. And really, the book is really his observation of Nurse Ratchet and McMurphy's relationship. So we are getting... A third person? A third person, in, in theory, um, but some, somewhat of a, a removed narrator... From that, um, the book goes into his backstory, Chief's backstory more about being a war veteran and having PTSD, and that ultimately reveals why he's in the ward to begin with. And actually, he ends up being the hero of the book, um, whereas I think the film has McMurphy more built up as the hero by the by the end, although obviously the end mm-hmm. is what it is, where the Chief physically becomes a hero, but I guess stylistically, the book is more, more um, focused on Chief as the hero. Uh, the book is much more violent as well. Or McMurphy, I'm sorry, is much more violent in the book than he is in the movie. Interesting. Um, he was actually arrested for violent acts and not for statutory rape in the book. But he does boast about all of the statutory rape that he's accomplished throughout his life. Specifically, a nine-year-old girl is who he talks about seducing Ooh. in the book. Again, not why he was arrested. Um, he was arrested for assault and battery in the book. But obviously that changed a little bit for the movie. Also, I thought interesting about the book, Cheswick, the character Cheswick commits suicide in the book. And the really timid, nice guy. Who's very like, timid, yeah. Um, yeah, very well acted as well, I thought. Um, that character um, drowns himself in a pool. Oh, I don't like um, that. And the, the, the scene kind of builds off of McMurphy's relationship to him in that they both kind of had each other's back as these people who would speak out against the rules and Cheswick finally kind of got on board with yeah. that. And then in that instance, McMurphy kind of took a back seat and actually um, sided on the, the side of the nurses. And Cheswick was so distraught by that that he ended up killing himself in the book. So a lot more, it's a, a lot darker of a book. The fishing trip is entirely different. The doctors, actually, that was a planned trip in the book. Huh. Um, and the doctors accompanied him to um, Nurse Ratchet. Her whole purpose of, of existence was kind of to get that trip canceled. Um, she was kind of sabotaging the trip in the book, huh. whereas the doctors were very much in favor of it. Um, this so is quite a departure it's, as you're it's, going through it's it. It's very, very different. And then the ending, of course, is much more different. The same events take place where he, he busts out at the end of, of, of the movie, but... Other other scenes in the book kind of connect connect better to that event, so we kind of understand that event better. And ultimately, the the end question you're left with in the book is: Is Chief actually going to survive? Is he going to be able to um, make a name, make a home for himself outside of the ward? Is he going to be able to exist in society? And that's kind of the underlying question of the book. Um, whereas the movie was very much hopeful and and kind of a, a happy-ish ending, right? You see him walking off into the sunset. Um, freedom and, and all of that. So it definitely had a different undertone. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of change there. I, I also read that, you know, uh, Mick Murphy's character was supposed to be a large red-headed guy with a beard. Irish. Not, not, Irish, yeah. yeah. Not a, not a uh, short... Uh, Jack Nicholson's not like an imposing yeah. figure himself. Yeah. Just a fireball of anger. <laughs> Another redheaded casualty of Hollywood. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, Mary, Mary's, Mary's redheaded, so she keeps tabs on, like, yep, another redheaded character. <laughs> out, out, uh, cast it out. Yeah. I don't know what you call that. Uh, unpale washing? I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, themes, though, in this one, I thought that was interesting that I not picked up on before, but in studying it now, I didn't pick up on the order versus chaos dynamic before uh between mcmurphy being the chaos and you know the defiant rebel and nurse ratchet i did know she was a control freak that part is they hit you over the head with that one right it's interesting to see how uh it's kind of in a way that reinforces that you know without chaos there's no freedom but on the other hand without some order you can't function either and this is a reminder that mcmurphy can't function so it's just kind of one of those classic moments of uh, they're both at such polar opposites. One's an authoritarian, while the other one's not quite an anarchist, but he's he's going that direction. He right. he can't function in society. That's why he's bouncing around from jail to institutions mm-hmm. and stuff. It's just one of those interesting things. McMurphy in the book does not sound nearly as likable, though, as he is in the movie. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because it's more of an observational take on him. So it's it's an outsider perspective about that character, where the chief is telling us what he's observing about um, and the chief also is not a reliable narrator. He's in a mental institution. He has PTSD. So in the book, that comes into it as well. So you always have to kind of think through, who am I getting this information from? Mm-hmm. But, you're, but, I, but I think you're right. It, it is a different portrayal. He didn't start off very likable for me. Like he's mm-hmm. kissing the guards and then doing the Indian mimicry to chief. Mm-hmm. It's like, am I supposed to like this guy no not initially i I am uh i am not a fan he grew on me later but his initial just trying to be outlandishly crazy i think that he sympathizes with the patients because they've been dictated this controlling life and that's how he's felt his whole life and that he saw compassion in them and that it's his compassion through those characters and the institution that makes him more likable the fact that he wants to take them on a fishing trip to breathe the air and to go out and have some experiences and enjoy life as opposed to just be controlled and subdued and held from the world and it's out of his basically hatred for for the for the man or the in this case uh nurse ratchet he comes to bond with these who are in his mind oppressed and they are but unfettered freedom comes with backlashes. Everything you did, everything you mentioned, that everything he does has consequences. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is one of those sad things of like, I, I find myself rooting for Jack Nicholson's character of McMurphy so much in this one. You know, it, it comes mm-hmm. back to bite him. Yeah. And I'll say this this time around, I tried my best to sympathize with Nurse Ratchet, even though I knew really? going in that she, what she was and who she represents. But I wanted to, I wanted to. I wanted her to have purpose, right? I wanted her to want to do well for the patients for the, and to, to do her best to help them out. And I kept looking for instances, and it, just, it didn't connect for me, <laughs> even though I was trying to be very intentional about it. I mm-hmm. couldn't make it work. Louise said she felt Nurse Ratched was trying to do the right thing. She was just doing it poorly. Yeah, yeah she just believed so firmly, like, the only way to do it is my way. Yeah, mm-hmm. the firm hand to control. Yeah. Like, which isn't a good outlook on anything. Well, and coming from, so I teach, as we mentioned, so thinking about how medical professionals would have been taught 
at that point in time, this was set, I think, in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 68. So, 68. So what that means, how health professionals would have been coached or taught to deal with patients like this, I kept thinking, okay, that's maybe where her in is, because that, I, I, what I know about psychology and how it kind of evolved, um, it wasn't really thought of as a medical profession, and so I'm sure at this point it was still very new, and people didn't really know how to really deal with um, characters like this, and yeah. this was kind of their way of navigating that. I was surprised at how many people felt like the movie was disturbing just because it was dealing around the subject of the stigma of mental health, and I think that I didn't view it that way as much, but maybe that's just because of my own personal experiences and walk through life. But uh, I, I found myself feeling for the patients. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, for someone like me that's struggled with mental health my entire life, like this is the nightmare. This is the place that you could wind up and try and work yourself out of, and especially their reality. I don't know the timeline, but you look at Rose Kennedy. She was lobotomized, and she was never the same, and this was around the same era. Uh, the, the practice was just kind of, uh, Mark hit it, it was wild, wild west. They didn't know what they were doing, and a lot of the things they were trying to do to help were cruel or harmful. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and that's been that way for most of history, sadly. We're only now starting to do a little better, and I think there's a long, long way to go with Emphasize how to help people. on the little better, I think. Yeah. We always have strides to make yeah and uh one one thing that i wanted to call out was the sink i'd never picked up on that before like as a mcmurphy goes to try and tear the sink out that that's a symbol of him trying to overthrow the establishment and in a way that his spirit uh is what empowers chief to go after the sink mm-hmm. in the end because while mcmurphy couldn't do it it's like one of those things where you're an idea starter and you're you might not be the one to do it but uh, your ideas carry through, and Chief was the one who had the, the power to make it happen. So he took the sink and crashed through that window and ran for the hills in freedom. So in a way, I, I didn't pick up on it before, but the sink is kind of a symbol of Nurse Ratchet's and, well, the institution, the whole thing, the whole institution's oppression. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Really well done. It's not, I, again, I can see why this movie's ranked so highly. It's maintained such great themes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, is it fair to say? I think, based on what you've told me and what I've read, I think I like the movie better than the book. Mm. It, well, uh, you you've done both though. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm I always go for the movie. <laughs> There's very few books that I would say the movie um, isn't as, isn't better. That may not be true. I may be exaggerating, but typically, yeah, movies speak more to me. So definitely in this case, that's that's true. Yeah. Now, Chad, do you want to give us a rundown of the cast? Absolutely. It's an impressive cast. Yeah, there's there's a huge cast. We have an hour and a half podcast, so I will not be doing it all. But uh, here we go with the main actors. So Jack Nicholson, he plays Randall Patrick McMurphy, uh, R.P. McMurphy. He's a lazy convict. He believes an asylum would be preferable to hard labor. As Russell mentioned earlier, you may recognize Jack Nicholson from watching Lakers games. <laughs> there's Louise Fletcher, who plays Nurse Mildred Ratched. She's the controlling nurse of the institution. Uh, she winds up parlaying this into a role as a doctor, so a bit of a medical upgrade in The Exorcist too. <laughs> Will Sampson, he is Chief Bromden. Uh, he's a mute, or a gigantic Indian man. He's actually native, so bonus there of casting a Native American in a Native American role. He goes on to play Crazy Horse and White Buffalo, 
and he's Taylor in Poltergeist 2. William Redfield, he plays Dale Harding, who is a paranoid patient. Uh, He was actually diagnosed with an illness by the doctors in this movie, so tragically he didn't appear in much else. I think it was 18 months later he would die of what he was diagnosed in. Uh, There's Brad Dorff. He is Billy Bibbit. And Billy Bibbit is a stuttering, anxious patient. Brad is a West Virginia native, so got to mention that. And he's notably the voice of Chucky. Uh, Sidney Lassick is Charlie Cheswick, who's this childish and kind of quirky patient. He is Mr. Frum in Carrie. And I promise I'm not doing this on purpose. These are... (laughs) You're in Chad's wheelhouse now. He's yeah. the horror expert. Yeah, oh, nice. I, I swear I'm not doing this on purpose. <laughs> this is what you would recognize most of these people from is a horror movie. They just all went on to do it. We'll see if you go Christopher Lloyd in a horror movie because then I know you're onto something. I am, I am not. I'm going to sell our own podcast. So Christopher Lloyd plays Max Tabor. Uh, Max is an eccentric, profane patient. And if you like Christopher Lloyd's performance, check him out in Clue. One of our earlier podcasts. Or Back to the Future. More. We have, Zach Brown. We have not done that and the, yet. And you did the Page Master as well, did you not? No. no. I thought you did. My bad. Maybe we should. So sorry. We, we need to now. <laughs> One of my favorites. <laughs> and then there's Danny DeVito, who plays Martini. And Martini is this naive, kind of simple patient. And you might recognize him as Frank Reynolds in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Absolutely. And uh, I want to give uh, Vincent Chevelli. Just a little mm-hmm. nod out there. He's one of the other main patients in the group there. He's the guy with the downturned eyes, like really saggy eyes. Very distinctive face. He's in a number of things, but uh, he's, he's one of the Penguin's henchmen in uh, <laughs> Batman Returns. Organ Grinder. Yes. I didn't See, know I, that was his name, but I looked it up and... I thought about out. mentioning Danny DeVito as the Penguin. The Penguin. Yeah, so there's a, more crossover. Jack yeah. Nicholson was the Joker. Oh, man. All of these yes. villains, Batman villains yes. in this movie. Wow. <laughs> Where was Michelle Pfeiffer to be found? Because then the Tim Burton villain trio would be complete. She would have made a better candy. Yeah. Yeah, or, or Rose, or but Rose. more on that later. Yeah. <laughs> so some other casting comments here. Director Milos uh, Foreman wanted a star in the lead role, but then to surround him with unknown actors. So despite the star-studded cast that Chad mentioned now, these guys weren't household names at the time which is really mind-blowing this was quite a springboard for their careers it was a lot of their first roles it was christopher lloyd's first role yeah yeah mark did you did you find anything interesting on the cast so i thought interesting that danny devito originated the role in on in a play the play version of this movie that's mm-hmm. where he was kind of discovered in that role on on the stage um and then they cast him in the movie i knew so louise fletcher she obviously won this award, didn't do a lot. She's been mostly TV um, most recently. Right. If anyone watches Shameless on Showtime, she is the matriarch of the, um, of the Gallagher family. So she plays uh, the, 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 um, yeah, the, the grandmother, as it were, Peg Gallagher in Shameless, which is where I knew her from. I feel like The Exorcist 2 rightfully killed her career. Maybe. It's like, win an is... Oscar, don't do The Exorcist 2. <laughs> right. Um, also, uh, Brad Dourif, which I didn't know the West Virginia connection. Um, I recognized him from Lord of the Rings, Two yes. Towers. He oh, he's so good. Wormtongue. Yeah. Rima Wormtongue. Yep, yep. But yeah, Nicholson. Uh, uh, Chiavelli, I, didn't, I don't know if I pronounced that, Vincent Chiavelli, um, that you mentioned, Russell. Um, 
I thought was interesting, he's a Nickelodeon voice actor. So all of the cartoons that I grew up watching are real monsters and Rugrats and really? um, Hey Arnold. He's a wow. prominent voice in all of those. I don't know the exact characters, but he's he, so physically interesting that surprised me that he's a voice actor. He was a he probably made most of his money voice acting, I would guess. And Mary would be remiss if I didn't say this. He's a memorable character from the X Files episodes, from mm. the Fiji Mermaid episode. So, uh, which is a Excellent. particularly creepy episode. <laughs> so. Yeah. Some other names that they considered in the main role were Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Steve McQueen. They were offered the role of McMurphy before Nicholson. Burt Reynolds also reportedly uh, considered for McMurphy, and John Voight lobbied to get the role, but they said no to him. So some other heavyweights were thrown Mm -hmm. about for this one. Absolutely. Uh, Louise Fletcher and Lily Tomlin. Interesting connection here. Um, Louise Fletcher was on the was scheduled to be uh, play a role in Nashville that Lily Tomlin ended up playing. Lily Tomlin was a, was originally scheduled to play Nurse Ratched. Oh, that seems like up, an awful fit. And they were filming at the same time, on, um, and they switched parts. I love Lily Tomlin. I would never want her to do this. Nurse Ratched. I can't imagine her as Nurse Ratched. But they both were nominated for Oscars for their respective roles that same year. Um, but they were supposed to be opposite roles the, in different movies. The worst casting I saw for Nurse Ratched was Angela Lansbury was considered. <laughs> Like, no. That's so sweet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Louise Fletcher, as you mentioned, was the only sign a week before the filming began, so they were really pushing it to the end yeah. on that switch. So it was another interesting one. And this was uh, Jack Nicholson's, like, kind of his, I guess, DiCaprio moment, because he had been nominated before yeah. for Best Actor, and this was the one that got him over the hump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had gotten nominated for Chinatown and mm-hmm. The Last Detail. Sadly, uh, he doesn't get one for The Shining. I'm okay with that. He had five nominations in the 70s alone. Yeah. Pretty big. Yeah. Big, Spe- big decade for him. Speaking of The Shining, they tried to shoehorn Shelley Duvall in. Did you see that for uh, Candy? Mm-hmm. Like, please don't cast her. Yeah. Well, I mean... I think she tried to shoehorn herself in, it sounds like. <laughs> I, I, I think so. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the extras in the hospital are actually patients because yeah. they shot this in a real facility which helped the actors get into the part a lot and if that sounds mean or disturbing or uh, ineffective the doctors who were there said it actually was good for the patients to have people from the outside come in and interact with them and uh, it was good therapy uh, again bottling everybody up and hiding them from the world might not always be the best thing to do it's it's just a hard thing to know what to do the the interviews that i would read from nicholson really any of the cast that you mentioned it sounds like the filming of this was a not very fun time. It sounds yeah. like it was a very horrendous experience, long and very just drain, emotionally draining. People have, that was kind of a common thread that I saw people talking about. Talking about the making of this movie, uh, this is wild. Uh, before I quite go into the director, there's that kind of the road for how this movie got made. I guess 13 year road that this took to get made into a movie. Ken Keasley was actually part of a volunteer group of 140 students to take LSD, which under a CIA-funded program, they were trying to test out LSD to see, you know, if they could interrogate people with it and control them with it. Obviously, that didn't work. Um, They just stared at the wooden table like, it's moving. But... um, he uh, worked as a, as a, at, at a hospital, and in the night shift, he stole LSD. And so under the influence of LSD, he writes One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. From what I'm reading, it seems like the book is a lot more trippy. Mm-hmm. Like, it talks about machinery running and the yeah. walls moving and fog filling up the room. And none of these, I guess, unnatural elements are in, presented mm-hmm. in the movie. Perhaps this is why Keasley got so upset 
Although Foreman made such a good movie, I just, I mean, he made you look really good, so right. I don't know why you... The, the machinery aspect is kind of tying back to the chief narrative. That was, it was Nate, man versus Nate, or machinery versus man, um, and he, that was kind of the end where an earlier scene in the book, he's watching a dog sniffing out in the field from, from, the, from the ward, and he watches the dog freely roam, and then that kind of plants the seed that he wants to get out, and McMurphy kind of enforces that for him, and then the dog gets hit by a car. And that kind of is this sort of symbol that, okay, it's beautiful, but eventually machinery is going to win out. So um, I think that, that that's all very, very relevant to the book, definitely. And the overtaking of his people. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. And Kurt Douglas, the actor Kurt Douglas, was the first encountered the book in 1961. And he instantly fell in love with it. He secured the rights for the opportunity. And he planned to star in it, but uh, the making of this movie got tied up. They'd made it into a play in 1963. It ran for about 83 performances, not a super long run. He planned to start it, but it didn't work out, so he passed it down to his son, Michael Douglas. So this is where Michael Douglas's name is one of the two producers on this. Douglas then carried this through, and every major studio didn't want to touch it. Again, it's this mental health stigma that's there in the 70s. And uh, so he had a hard time getting this made, and Milos Forman was somebody that Kurt Douglas had met in Prague. And so this was somebody that Kurt was thinking about long before, and that he met Milos during the Soviet occupation of Czechoslovakia. So he's coming from a very different perspective. Keesley is from an American perspective, and he was writing about how American society is so oppressive, mm-hmm. and Milos related to it more from a Soviet communism. Life mm-hmm. is so oppressive. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting to see those two visions coming at the same story from two very different angles. So it's such an interesting road to getting made. Yeah, the, so that. the Broadway play that you mentioned, 1963, so Kirk originated the role of McMurphy on Broadway. Interestingly, Gene Wilder played Billy in that production. Wow, that seems heavy for Gene. Pretty crazy. Um, and this is uh, Michael Douglas's first credit as a producer. It's kind of his first work behind uh, the camera, so I'm guessing they had a very paternal <laughs> son-father relationship there. He would have been somewhere in his early 30s when he did that, so... Um, and then I saw the, the only other producer, I, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but the Saul Zayans yeah. um, seemed to, to team up with Foreman on several things. He was on Amadeus, but they won the Oscar for that. And Goya's Ghost, they reteamed um, in 2000. Um, and he actually won another Oscar for The English Patient. So he was pretty celebrated. I always think of the Seinfeld episode when you say The English Patient. Yeah. <laughs> Late, I don't understand how you couldn't like The English Patient. <laughs> he wound up doing uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings as well. Oh, yeah. Keasley cool. wrote a screenplay for this, and perhaps this is where the bitterness comes from, because Milos is like, oh, that's nice, and then threw it out. <laughs> and so he went and got Bull Goldman, and the two of them wrote the screenplay, which again is more coherent and more likable. The Keasley screenplay had the, had the chief as a narrator is still that same idea. Do you think that could have worked... In the movie format, because you're just going to be narrating inside the head the whole time. Right. If you have a mute character, how do you make that? Have Morgan Freeman talk for them? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Ah, P. McMurphy. (laughs) Hold into the Oregon State Mental Institution. I mean, he was great in other prison type films, so yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, hey. I guess he was around at the time. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah he he's seventy something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about Milos as a director, Chad? I I think he was great. 
I've only seen Amadeus and Hare out of all his other works, but he seems to enjoy these kind of weighty tones in his yeah, he does. in his movies and he's he doesn't really shy away from controversy or even sadness. No, you're right about that. Ragtime's not sad. I have not seen that. It has some sad moments. But yeah, it does. It's joyous. Yeah. Man on the Moon, certainly heavy. Yeah. I mean, for a movie about Andy Kaufman, I was like, oh boy, Andy Kaufman, he's so funny. Yep. And Jim Carrey, this is going to be a riot. <laughs> it's going to be perfect. And then I got into it, I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is heavy. Yeah. He's a very weird person. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he up. was. Yeah, he was. You uh, know, I was afraid when I went into Bohemian Rhapsody, I was going to get into Man on the Moon. I, I went in really timid, and then like they handled it. I was like, man, I really wish they had handled Man on the Moon more like that. Mm. Like, that's how I wanted to feel after watching it. I wanted to appreciate the person, their art, and what they did, and not... Dwell in the pain and the <laughs> arm. Well, he, Milos wasn't about that life. No, so no. He was pretty deliberate that way. Well, I guess growing up in uh, Soviet-controlled mm-hmm. Czechoslovakia, you know pain. Right. So Interesting you bring up Man of the Moon. It, sound, it seems like, or um, I read that Foreman named his children Andy and James after Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey. Oh, wow. I was a fan of that narrative. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So... I just thought it was so interesting how he basically reshaped the whole movie. And that's a lot of control. And I remember kind of thinking back when we did The Shining. I know Chad doesn't like it, so, but, uh, but I mean. I don't either, so it's fine. I remember what it was like to have a. I thought, man, I can see why the writer, you know, just got so mad that somebody came in with their vision and threw, threw what they did out. Also, but, someone that likely wrote their story on drugs. Probably, but in fairness, <laughs> but in fairness, they're both just so good. It's one of those things where they've made you look really good, and I just don't understand why you come away with it as it's a different interpretation. Right? Doesn't this happen with every movie? I don't know. Like one of my favorite authors is Michael Crichton, and every single book I've ever read of his has changed dramatically. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park was a very different book. Very different. Very good. Yes. Wow. You know, I wouldn't mind them remaking that someday in the future and doing it more to the story. But um, this isn't Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, do you feel like the storytelling worked well, though, from, from Milos's control of like presenting information and the emotional journey that he takes you on? Yeah, I don't think he really isn't a flashy director at all. He'll, he'll pretty, he tries for the realistic, right? He wants realism, and he wants to imitate real life, and I think that's true of all of his movies. Um, mm-hmm. So there wasn't really anything that stood out to me as a flashy choice even from like the cinematography like camera angles there it really was there wasn't anything that stood out it really was just they were dropping you in this asylum and you were just there with them and there was no even calling attention to the fact that you're watching a movie i had the same thought but then i looked at the awards it's like best cinematography nominated oh. yeah it was nominated. it was didn't, it didn't win that one yeah and rightfully so because i also was sitting there going like this movie is not shot very well, in my opinion. I mean, that's a strange thing to say to an Oscar-nominated movie, but I don't think there was... I mean, there were some moments where I thought they didn't focus on people's faces well. People were jumping out of frame. I mean, the group wasn't shot in a well where you could take everybody's reactions in at the same time. I had a lot of criticism for how some of these scenes were done. I thought it was... I wouldn't call it, like, amateur filmmaking, but I thought that, you know, as far as the actual craft of feeling the emotions of the group and stuff like that, Camera work was probably one of the more lacking parts of this movie. There, yeah. there were a lot of close-up shots. I noticed that even with the groups, there was very little else in the frame. So 
I I assume that was deliberate, but it, it was just a tale of the people. Yeah. Yeah, and you can get people's facial reactions, but again, if you put like somebody in the foreground, you see their face, and then somebody's a little bit out of focus in the background, you can see their face. I just thought there was a lot of more potential with the angles and whatnot, and uh, I just didn't think that they uh, explored. Do you feel that way about his other movies, though? No, I don't feel that way because I remember. Okay. I remember again. I'm going to go back to Man on the Moon. Uh, I remember feeling the heaviness of cancer. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was like, man, this is a battle that he's in right now, and that this is heavy. And I felt the weight of the emotions. So I didn't feel that there. So maybe the cinematographer, mm-hmm. Haxel Wexler and Bill Butler, they share a credit, but I think uh, a little more on that is Haxel Wexler actually was fired as the cinematographer, mm-hmm. and then he was replaced by Bill Butler. And Foreman said he was terminated over artistic differences, but Wexler and Butler both received Academy Award nominations together. Mm. So, but even though Wexler said there's only about two minutes in the moon movie that he did not shoot, but of course that's him saying that. I, I did 98% of that. So, um, I wonder what the creative differences would have been. Like, don't shoot it so inspired. <laughs> it's too pretty. It's too pretty. Stop it. <laughs> Chad, anything else on Milos? Just the. Especially with this movie, everything felt so sterile. The lighting was harsh in a lot of it. Uh, the walls were very plain. I imagine this was realistic for... I mean, you said it was a real mental institution, but everything was clean, everything was sterile, and everything was just tight in, and it almost gives you a feeling of claustrophobia, like you said, of I want wider-angle shots or better-pictured faces just... I don't know, it was unsettling to me. Huh, maybe the confinement of the camera was reinforcing of what they were feeling. I hadn't considered that until now. I like that. Maybe my desire to have more experience was him taking away that from you. Maybe a stretch, I don't know. But... <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, you've, you've made me like it more somehow, or uh, justify it. Okay. So this is shot, as I mentioned, in an Oregon State Hospital, and uh, Superintendent Dr. Dean Brooks was the one who agreed to give the filmmakers unlimited access uh, there, which is pretty... Uh, bold move and that's why they shot it there even though I, the whole time I was watching I was like is this New England? and then at the end I was like seeing the mountains I was like of course it's not New England <laughs> <laughs> but the bay like when they got on the boat and stuff like that I got this real New England vibe off of things so the fishing boat and whatnot. so wrong ocean <laughs> <laughs> they look the same yeah obviously shooting it on location was brilliant I don't think that they could have reduplicated that atmosphere that you're talking about Chad that sterility and stuff had they built a set mm-hmm. i mean they put you in there and actually like i said some of the extras in the background are real patients yeah yeah the, the hospital was i think that was probably the smartest choice they made in making the film was to do it on location like that so it's perfect i thought one thing that they did do well was in the wardrobe i mean nurse ratchet was like super super primped and like should the hat had to be like such a way her hair was done in such a way like kind of looks like devil horns almost like the way her hair is like done up like in this way that it doesn't move and her face never moves so she's she's in a whiter color of white than the patients like if you look at the patients garbs like they're like not all the way beige but it's like a maybe a dingier white yeah and and so that kind of shows like i'm in control and like it's very much reinforcing through the wardrobe and similarly um McMurphy wears dark colors. So, like, he's that rebel. Like, he wears that dark cap. He's got the black leather jacket and stuff like that. So, um, just another one of those ways that the visuals were reinforced. Again, feeling very much like you're in there mm-hmm. with them. Definitely. Yeah, I 
I wrote the same thing that the patients kind of had drab colors. No one really had anything bright. And the, the staff, down to the orderlies, they all had these pristine, clean uniforms. They let one guy have a robe, which was odd, I thought, like a blue bathrobe that had like a mustache and like the guy who was like getting trying to explain like he was suspicious of his wife sleeping around on him yeah. forget that character's name now but uh um the guy who died shortly thereafter yeah it, it was uh dale harding. harding dale harding's character yeah I, I it was a strange move that he was kind of a non-conforming piece as well hmm. yeah. I, I wonder what the i i do wonder why that was i made sense that Murph McMurphy was different, but why him? Maybe just uh... and I always wonder, and we maybe we'll talk about this soon. But the idea of being there voluntarily versus being forced there. Most of the people that we meet are voluntary, and so because they're voluntary, maybe they are able to do wear whatever they want to wear, whereas other people are more. This is me interjecting. I have no idea. That was an interesting point. I, I remember that was a, that was a scene I had somehow forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, when he looks around at everybody and says, "You know, wait." You guys can just leave anytime you want to. <laughs> you choose this for yourself. Right. Yeah, that was odd because it seemed like most of the patients were worse off mm-hmm. than McMurphy. Like, they probably should have been institutionalized to some extent. Well, we know one guy couldn't be there because he, like, was so, like, he thought, like, he suspected his wife, irrationally mm-hmm. so. And then we also know that Billy, I think, he was abused by his mother, like, physically abused because he had this very fearful. Mm-hmm. moment of letting his mother into any part of his life yep. if nothing else it's paranoia mm-hmm. so we don't know as much about the other characters and their backstories but uh, there's signs of this might actually be an improvement yeah. as hard as it is to believe for some yeah. yeah so maybe that's why they're choosing to be there mm-hmm. well, against you know mcmurphy's like you guys doing this on purpose right <laughs> did you think there was any significance to voluntary versus involuntary in that scene because the the governmental thing did that 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 illusion didn't you don't get to choose your government right interesting yeah i i mean that was actually probably my favorite scene was when he made had that realization um or he was told that that people were there voluntarily um and when he's realizing that he is one of the minority in that sense where he probably feels like a majority when he's in as as in he's very normal um but then he feels very minority like um so that was probably one of my favorite scenes but i think Maybe the symbolism of that is we, we just kind of, if you think, kind of put yourself in the place of someone who is seeking mental help or mental health professional, we want to believe that they're going to want to help us, right? So people who go there are looking for that help, um, as opposed to McMurphy, who obviously didn't choose to go to jail, didn't choose to come to the asylum. It was all against his will. And so he's not, he doesn't have that mindset or doesn't have that appreciation for the mental health profession even though what we were witnessing was a very poor interpretation of that profession, for the patients, they may have seen it as normal, and that, that's kind of um, that's something that they chose for themselves because it was the quality of life that they wanted. I get the impression that he parlayed this into getting himself committed, not that he was necessarily transferred, like he was hmm. actively trying to stay there. Yeah, yeah. I think that he thought it would be easier yeah. than... Oh, doing time in jail like because they even said like we think you're just trying to get out of work uh your work duty through jail and i think he looked surprised when the black guard the 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 guy guarding the pool the the washington 
I think yeah. was his name. Yeah. When Washington tells him, he's like, I got 68 days left. He goes, not in here, you don't. Yeah. You've, transferred into, you've transferred into whenever we say you can go, which mm-hmm. might be never. And he looks surprised. So that was another one of those moments, too, that like Chad said, I think that there's a distinct moment of, I got here looking for an easier mm-hmm. ride than prison. Mm-hmm. And he found himself in a much worse situation in many ways. Definitely. Probably. The soundtrack to this movie. Chad, did you have any thoughts on that one? Well, it clearly was appreciated by the Academy. Uh, it won Best Original Scores. And to me, I just wrote one word, and it was emotional. It guides you through the scenes and sets the tone for you of, hey, there's there's tribalness at some points. There are Indian drums, or there are just these morose uh, violin and cello background music and it's just makes you very sad when you're supposed to be or energizes you when you're supposed to be mark what do you think about the uh opening and closing theme um i'm pretty uh usually attentive to music in movies i can't say that this really stood out to me that much um i felt like the setting itself captured more of the feeling more so in in many ways i would expect the music to do that in movies but for this one i don't really remember the music that much um, and I think that may have been intentional. It was kind of a more simplistic score. There's not a lot of it. No, you're right about um, that. So, um, yeah, it, nothing really stood out to me about it. But that may be a good thing. Maybe it kind of just faded in the background. And I like, I like your description, Chad. It kind of sets up your emotions. Maybe even for me, it was clearly without even realizing that it was doing that. But I think that's true. The first... The first scene and the last scene, which are the same mm-hmm. song, which is emblematic because the scenes, are, you know, you're driving from nature, mm-hmm. like bringing McMurphy in. He's like this man from the wild and they're bringing him into the institution. And in the inverse of that, Chief's running away from the institution out into nature. Nature being freedom, the construct being mm-hmm. the, the establishment, the system. The The music starts with these tribal drums and it's like, it, like it's got these high-pitched twirly sounds that are like... Like you said, a little bit chaotic, a little off-put, maybe crazy, maybe wild. And uh, the warm brass comes in and overtakes it, which I kind of take that to be like the establishment. That's as he's like walking into the into the facility. It, it syncs up with that. And uh, but in the end, it's it ends in a dark note, kind of like what you were talking about, Chad. So uh, the only other moment that I really noticed the score was uh, the fishing trip. That there was the joy of the fishing trip for the patients there. Yeah, I mean, I think you're hitting on it. The the music, when you're in the facility, they don't really want you to have a context for music. Really, I mean, I remember there are some scenes where the radio is playing in the background or they're playing the the classical music. Oppressively loud. Yeah. um, Not the World Series, (laughs) the music instead. But yeah, when you're in the institution, maybe that was a conscious decision to not have music or a score playing very much. And then when you're outside of it, fishing trip or before and after, yeah, I think that that's an interesting realization. I hadn't thought of it. There is a lot of quiet though, mm-hmm. and uh, you're right. I think I think had this been movie been made today, they would have gone for like, hey, drive home the point that Billy's afraid right now, or drive mm-hmm. home the point that. Uh, like make Nurse Ratchet seem angrier with some with with score, and they didn't they didn't go any in that direction. Yeah. So, look for this, Mark. Do you have any look for this moment? Yeah, so I kind of mentioned that I'm an Oscar nerd. So um, I mentioned already that this is one of the top five, or, or, or one of the three movies that have won the top five Oscars. Um, Jack Nicholson, 
I mentioned his. Uh, he actually beat out Al Pacino that year for Best Actor in Dog Day Afternoon, which I thought was another good movie and another good performance. Did they get it right? I think they got it right. Okay. Nicholson obviously won two other times after that, but in different decades. I thought that the Jaws connection was interesting because what I know about uh, that period in time, Jaws is kind of the first blockbuster film that we recognize as the term blockbuster, kind of where blockbuster was coined was through... Especially summer blockbuster. Summer blockbuster, exactly. That, that used to be like a dead time of the year and then Jaws through, came out. And through Jaws. Like... And I think when the, the movie came out, uh, Cuckoo's Nest came out, it grossed, at that time, it was the seventh highest grossing film of all time, which I think speaks to the Jaws blockbuster spillover a little bit, where hmm. people were kind of getting used to going to the movie, and I'm wondering if there's a correlation to that, where we have this very studio-centric movie like Jaws that draws people in by, by the droves, um, and then kind of spilling over into Cuckoo's Nest, which is very different of a movie, obviously. Very different, um, and it comes out in November. Mm-hmm. So like Jaws is a summer movie. Summer, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. I thought that the the directors that were nominated that year outside of Foreman are all amazing directors. Federico Fellini, who's probably one of the most celebrated directors of all time, nominated for 12 Oscars, never won any because all of his movies were in Italian. He's the um, Buffalo Bills of directors. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Robert Altman was nominated for Nashville that year. Sidney Lumet was nominated and Stanley Kubrick was nominated. So it was a, a powerhouse of five directors. Oh, I'm sorry, year. Chad Kubrick didn't get it. I'm fine And with I that. had never, Barry Lyndon is his movie. I've never heard of this Kubrick movie, so I'm very I've eager heard to of look it, but I've not it. done it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, my last piece of information is for current times. So there is a series being filmed right now, actually, for Nurse Ratched. She has a series coming out. And Michael Douglas is producing the series. Um, Nurse Ratched is going to be played. A younger version of Nurse Ratched is played by Sarah Paulson. And it's produ- um, Ryan Murphy is the showrunner, so I'm assuming it's going to be on FX or some of one of those networks. Sarah Paulson, Cynthia Nixon, Judy Davis, Sharon Stone, Don Cheadle, Corey Stoll are all characters in this show. So it's supposed to come out this year. So look for that. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I uh, I, I don't know that I, want, I don't know ratchet. that I want to go. I don't, I don't know that I want more Nurse Ratchet. She's, she's... See, they, they're trying to they're trying to humanize her. They want they want to tell her backstory. Yeah. Well, it's funny that uh, you say that because I mean she was associated with being so uptight that they said like as you mentioned that the, the the cast had a hard time making this movie. It was a lot of, and when they kind of got to the end of it, like they had this big this big party and that uh, she came in. Uh, Wearing nothing but her panties, and uh, uh, which I, uh, to show people that she was uh, loose and uh, you know and um, fun, and I'm not this nurse ratchet person. To which I would have said, "Put your clothes back on." Right. Yeah, she <laughs> yeah. said she wasn't allowed to smile or laugh, so that's why she did that at the end. Yeah, I would, can't I, you I, just I, imagine that deadpan like? Louise Fletcher in only her underwear, not smiling or laughing, but just I, I don't, there. I, Again, I don't, I don't want to picture this. I might, I might just be like, I appreciate your sentiment, right. but on second thought, well, maybe not do that. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, could you not? Yeah. Um, Chad, do you have any look for this moment? Yeah, towards the very beginning, you can see that Jack Nicholson jumps on a guard, and he kisses him. And the guard's reaction was genuine. Because it was set up to be the other guy, the other orderly. And uh, he wasn't, Milos wasn't getting a good reaction from him. He kept trying to redo it. And so he told Jack Nicholson in private, hey, kiss the other guy. And the other guy was very surprised. He actually kind of takes a swing at him. (laughs) And uh, 
yeah so that uh i'm sure that was fun for everyone <laughs> huh i've got one here that's uh former president barack obama says this is his favorite movie of all time interesting yeah very cool as well as director ron howard said that as well so opie and a president good company <laughs> yeah <laughs> And uh, another fun look for this moment is Angelica Houston, who we did not mention, is Jack Nicholson's one-time girlfriend mm-hmm. at this point, and uh, she appears in the crowd on the pier as the fishing boat comes back. So there's another big-name actor in this movie that uh, we somehow evaded us in the beginning. In the background. Uh, it's my favorite time in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite time in the podcast. Movie superlatives. Mark, do you want to start us off with your MVP? Yeah, I can't say mine's, mine are going to be that exciting. Uh, MVP, it has to be Nicholson. I mean, I, I'm, I've liked him in most what he's done, um, but this was definitely my favorite that he's ever done. So he's easily my MVP. I'm, I love the inmates. I love their camaraderie. I love the um, relationship that they all had, and I thought they all did really well, but Nicholson definitely is mine. Okay, and Chad... Yep, Jack Nicholson. Uh, he's magnificent, and he's the engine that makes this go. I I momentarily considered Milos Forman because of how transformative he was with the script. I think I wouldn't have enjoyed this movie near as much if Chief been telling the story, and I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much had uh, McMurphy been more unlikable. So it is tempting to go with him because this is a very different vision than the one Ken Kesley had. Um, however... Jack Nicholson, this is this is the best that he's done, and I love '89 Batman. By the way, that's that's really high up there for me. And uh, but this is Jack Nicholson's best acting performance, to my knowledge. So um, uh, this is this is up there for him. And so I'm there's a right answer here, and Jack Nicholson is it. So best supporting actor, Mark. This is a tougher one. There's so many good ones. I mean, is it? there really are, but. I guess I I went with Louise Fletcher. I went with Ratchet. Um, and the reason I did that. And I, and I should emphasize this, she won Best Actress. And I remember when I first watched the movie, being the Oscar nut that I was, I never understood why she was a lead actress in this movie. She didn't really stand out to me the first few times. But then watching it this time, I could see where she was all over the place. Yeah. And I, didn't, I don't know why I missed that the first few times. But as a supporting role, I think she should have been more supporting, probably a supporting actress. I'm not sure lead actress okay. That's probably a strong, strong word for that. But the Oscars get that wrong all the time so i chose louise fletcher okay and chad yep two for two so far (laughs) she does a great job at making you hate her but the entire time i was sitting there appreciating her performance so oh she's great at being dislikable in the same way that uh margaret hamilton was like so good at being evil which is so funny because they're acting because they're not these people so it's one of those things where i have to admit if i did meet lewis fletcher i would have to scowl at her be like that's uh jack gleason for me game of thrones he plays joffrey and he just has such a punchable face and he's just this (laughs) cruel little kid but you know he's an actor yeah he's he's apparently apparently (laughs) he's the little tiny kid that batman and batman begins gives the radio to oh very cool fun facts there i I also went with lewis fletcher but for diversity's sake i'm gonna say brad dwarf okay because and a little maybe a little bit of home cooking here but uh uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna pick chucky on this one because he is poignant and his Mm -hmm. scenes and the intensity that he has on his face and the the stuttering seemed genuine it didn't um didn't seem false or forced mm-hmm. and I, again the concern that was on his face that he expressed as well as the happy moments as well too and he uh, he he exhibited the greatest range mm-hmm. of anybody because nurse ratchet she's 
the same the whole way throughout the movie. She's that that's her character. She's controlled in her emotions even. Um, but uh, and Jack Nicholson's always you know he's a wild card. But uh, you know Brad Dourif is the one who exhibited I would say the most difficult range of acting. So I'm gonna go ahead and just for diversity's sake hand it to Brad. Okay. Uh, hidden gem, Mark. So I went with Brad Dourif as my hidden gem. Um, so and I also put Christopher Lord down, Lloyd. Yeah. Um, I thought. Um, so just you, what you said about uh, Billy was spot on. So for Christopher Lloyd, I thought that his character, and I think his name was Tabor or Tabor, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he he always had this kind of smirk on his face that I think kind of let us get to know him, even though we never found much out about him at all. He's an instigator. He, he's an instigator. He has this twinkle in his eye, and I think that every time he had some sort of plot forming in his head, um, you could see that on the screen in the few times that he is on the screen. So That's the most aggressive I've seen Christopher Lloyd. It was a lot of fun. Buckaroo Banzai? Across the Eighth Dimension? I mean, he had an alien mask on. Darn you, John Morphin! <laughs> and the high horse you rode in on! No, that was Doc Brown in a an alien mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. When I watched his performance here, I felt very compelled to cast him as a uh, likable but eccentric scientist who invents a time machine and befriends a high school boy and sends him back in a time unknowingly. <laughs> Just yeah. I, I just got that I just got that I don't know why it's very specific it just came to me right. I watched this method probably patent that or something I trademark that <laughs> I, I think his agent should have worked on that right uh, so, Chad who is your hidden gem I'm gonna go with deep cut uh, Peter Brocco he played the general and he's the guy in the wheelchair that is uh, <laughs> he, he starts mumbling the Star Spangled yeah. Banner and he acts like this old age hero that we get a lot of the stereotypes of but he he actually made the early scenes seem real to me because mm. everyone knows or knows of that just aging military vet and he did a great job with it I thought yeah. I, you have to call it the when he goes up to the punching bag that's like like the the, the, the punching right. bag and he takes his cane because he's in a wheelchair <laughs> well below it and he takes his cane up like almost like it's a pinata and he goes yes <laughs> okay yeah. i don't think this is a comedy but that that little thing See, made me laugh it sounds funny to me i don't know <laughs> comedy roots my hidden gym is going to go to danny devito I got well into this movie before I realized that was Danny DeVito. It did not look like him. Absolutely. Yeah, so young and not quite as round and ball-like as he would later be. He, he is so... Uh, he changes his facial expressions and he really... I, again, he transformed himself to me to the point where I got well into this movie. And before I realized, oh, that's DeVito? Mm-hmm. This wasn't my first time watching the movie either, so that really... That really yeah. hit me. So I'm going to go with DeVito. I'm a big fan of his in general. So, uh, Definitely. Yeah. Right. I was thinking about it, The best actor for the small size. Ooh. Ouch. <laughs> That's a big and statement sh- there. Because oh. he's, oh. he's a very small man. Okay. Well. I'll Peter leave. Dinklage? I love Peter I Dinklage. Do. I mean, that's hard to beat. But yeah. Drew, I got you. Drew Barrymore as a child? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, uh, if we open it up to children, then that, I don't know. Okay, uh, so if you had to recast somebody, Mark, who would it be? Who would you put in their place? Well, I kind of complicated this one because I would like to see this movie redone today. Whoa! But I would like them to change the story around a little bit. Um, obviously, shock therapy wouldn't be as um, done, I guess, today. Obviously, hopefully Hope not. not. So I could see this story easily being redone with 
um, antidepressants and or like Adderall Ritalin type of things. Um, so I was making, I was recasting it for that story in my mind. Um, and I had just got done seeing The Lighthouse, which is oh, a film yes. this year. So I put Robert Pattinson down, which I fully am aware that that sounds ridiculous because before I saw The Lighthouse, I didn't ever think of him as a good actor, but he blew my mind away in that movie and I could see him easily taking on a role like R.P. McMurphy. Oh, he's great. Mm-hmm. Twilight was his make a ton of money and yep. never do those and, types and of movies again. Absolutely good for him. I'm glad he made all that money. <laughs> I think he's about to make some money again as Batman. Yeah. Is he? I didn't I hadn't heard that, oh, so Yeah, he's your new Batman. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but okay, we'll I'm, go with it. I'm on board for this. I, I went around saying Affleck was going to be terrible. I mean, I'll take it. His any, movie, anybody above he, Batman. He didn't sure. yeah, he didn't get very good movies, but Affleck wasn't terrible. It wasn't his fault. I didn't even see it. So. Oh, well then. <laughs> and then I said um, Angelina Jolie as Nurse Ratchet. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, interesting. She's a lot tougher of a Nurse Ratchet then, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, would more, I would more not want to cross her. She's got, yeah. was it Girl Interrupted? Girl Interrupted, yeah. Oh, that's so yeah, mental. experience. Yeah, mental health. Uh, Chad, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be and who would you put in their place? Going small here. Wow, that was a pun and I didn't mean to. Uh, Moria Small who played Candy, I'm recasting her with Kirstie Alley. I feel like Kirstie Alley would bring a little more personality and almost like bimbo-like qualities to the role. I didn't feel like Candy, the character just didn't work for me. Close. I'm going to go with Rose, her friend, who I felt like I didn't get this party girl vibe off. I felt kind of sad for her. Yeah. For one, she's a little bit on the old side yeah. to be coming in and doing what she's doing. I was like, I was like, this is this isn't good for this. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, PJ Souls, and uh, this is just before Carrie and Halloween and Rock and Roll High School and her running through the 70s. So you'd be getting her just a little bit before that, but uh, mm-hmm. um, she was born in 1950. She would have been about 25. I'm, I'm thinking a more rebellious type of girl coming in here would be uh would be more believable and more fun so i think pj souls is gonna party with in with the crazies so best shot mark um so i chose when he's entering the facility for the first time we mentioned the kissing of the guard as part of that scene um i loved the um, I guess these are more acting choices than they are um, uh, cinematography choices. But as he's dancing, he's coming in, he's kissing. He's very light, lighthearted. He's trying to. He's overly trying to pretend to be crazy at that point, just to drive home the fact that he wanted to be there. Um, and then once he crosses that threshold of the door, almost the lighting changes, his face changes, everything changes. The mood does he, change. Where he just has a sudden realization that oh, this is actually where I am. This is what my life is going to be. And I thought that was really brilliantly done. Really brilliantly acted, for sure, but I think in general. That higher perspective looking through the gate Mm -hmm. as well. You're from the inside, shooting to the outside. exactly. That's a good choice. Yeah, walking right at you. Great choice. Now, Chad, what's your best shot of the movie? For me, it's Chief walking off into the night Mm -hmm. with the dark tree line and dark skies overhead at the very end. Uh, There was a cloud over what he had just done. I mean, he was helping his friend who'd been lobotomized, but, you know, he killed him. Uh, And I really appreciate the fact that his pointiness is seen as it was. The director resisted the urge to make it this bright horizon that he was walking into. He was walking into the unknown, and so it was dimly lit. And 
don't know if Chief makes it or not. You know, that's the right answer. <laughs> I'm picking that one as well. But um, just for diversity's sake, I'll call out one other moment. Uh, when uh, Nurse Ratchet is first introduced, she's coming from behind a gate, which is very prison-like. There's a red light over her head. There's a clock ticking in the background. Again, not a lot of music here. And the sound effect of this, like, tick, 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 as she's coming in, and very proper, all in the white and stuff like that. Right away, she means business, and she's no fun at all. So that's why I said I'm not sure I want to show Nurse Ratchet. She seems like the, the <laughs> ultimate killjoy. Right. Um, so She's every teacher you hated in right. high school. That's a great comparison. Yeah, I had a history sure, teacher yeah. named Mrs. Hannah, and, uh, you know, this reminds me so much of Mrs. Hannah. I'm sure she's listening right now. I'm very proud. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. You're Nurse Ratchet, Mrs. Hannah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you are the opposite of Batman. <laughs> So, uh, best scene, Mark? Um, I have so many. So, okay. I've mentioned already how much I liked when he found out that everyone was there voluntarily. I guess I also thought the best scene was, again, when he he was introduced to everyone. They're playing, they're around the table playing cards. Mm -hmm. And you, he immediately disrupts their game. And I feel like that's very symbolic of the whole movie where he comes in and just shakes things up and changes everything. So I think that initial scene where everyone's playing cards and he's kind of meeting and greeting and I thought that was really, really cool. Oh yeah, really it's well like done. coming and throwing like an Asian carp into the river. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's chaos! Yeah. Chad, what is your best scene? Mark touched on this earlier, but the pool scene where McMurphy is telling the orderly that he only has... 68 days left and the orderly says you still don't know where you are you don't leave until we say you can leave and you see the color kind of drain out of mcmurphy's face and it's just it becomes a horror movie at that point of oh i've been messing with nurse ratchet and i should probably, I probably should not have done yeah, that <laughs> i should not have done that and he just all of his errors are setting in on him and what he signed himself up for. I didn't like Washington's character. Again, talking about how the treatment of mental patients and with these needs and stuff like that, he's very angry, quick to be physical, not compassionate, not caring at all. He's a guard, like a prison guard. And unfortunately, sadly, um, that's how it was back then. Yeah. So uh, I, I know from multiple... Uh, accounts and family experiences on that so it's a uh, it, it that that that's a sad character for me i it shows you the opposite of what people like that need so uh yeah that's that you're right that a lot of reality does sink in at that part of the movie um my my best scene is actually a happy moment where she says you can't watch the world series on night two even after he gets the 10th vote and he goes over to the blank TV screen, and he talks about Kovacs takes the pitch, and he moves around, and, and like he's he's narrating a fictional game in his head, and the other patients just see how happy he is, and how much energy he has, and they're drawn to it, and they just want to participate in the joy of it, even though the game's not on. They they wanted to watch the game, and in a way, he's determined to bring this game to them, and the same way that he brought the fishing trip to them. So he brought this little slice of happiness to them, and it's that happiness that I, I i want to see these characters have and so um it's there's a rebellious streak in me as chad will say as well i've gotten in trouble uh, opening my mouth and doing things that i shouldn't have done many times so i related so much to mcmurphy in that scene because it seems like something like i would have wanted to do and it made everybody happy while raising a little bit of hell 
<laughs> that was a great scene. Yeah, it was a really good scene. Um, change one thing, Mark. I'm not a fan of the fishing trip. It just is too outlandish to me that he was on, got the bus, he drove the bus, and I don't got to the boat. No one died. I feel like so many bad things could have happened, and it just wasn't that believable. Counterpoint to that, I think the book handled that scene much better. In that sense, I think maybe that's the one part of the book that I thought was much better um, done. But the fishing trip just seemed too too outlandish to really enjoy too much of. So no, it's okay. My, he told that me that was my change. I checked. I checked the docs already. It's okay. We got this. Right. 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 <laughs> the cast all got seasick. Yeah, I heard. That. Well, they're driving <laughs> yeah. in circles. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Danny DeVito still says it makes him queasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Chad, change one thing. I would have excluded the medication line scene for McMurphy. Uh, I don't know exactly what they were medicating him for. The in-house doctors kept saying that they believed he was faking it. So what the heck are you giving him? I think they're just giving him drugs to sedate him to see how he responds. Maybe, but it it just seems weird because the doctors are saying, we don't believe he belongs here. So what are you giving him other than maybe sugar and they should have explained that sugar pills? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Something just to like normalize the procedures that when he does end up taking something, he would be used to taking something. Actually, when they're debating the second time whether he should go back to jail or not, Nurse Ratchet is the only one who keeps him there. That's when I know she's evil. Mm -hmm. And you definitely know later when she basically rubs Billy's nose in it and she pushes his buttons and pushes him over the edge. But um, Because I don't think she does care about these patients. She's all about the control. Mm-hmm. And um, but that when she says like I think I can still work with him like um, that's when I knew she was evil so it's yeah. a, that just reminds me of that um, my change one thing is uh, it's a small detail but the orderly comes in and catches Turkle uh, making a lot of noise in the room and then uh, um, you know Candy comes out as if it's only her there to basically make a bad thing a lot less bad and uh, she's like, get that woman out of here. And then she walks off and never returns. <laughs> There's not like, I'm going to see you out, honey. Right. There's not, I'll be back in five minutes and I better not see any funny business here. <laughs> it's, it's just like, she, she forgot. <laughs> was there another party happening in another wing that was worse? <laughs> so I found myself saying, as a supervisor... Didn't seem like you were doing a very good job of your job either. He got paid. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Best quote of the movie, Mark. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Yes, yeah. of course. Oh, I loved that's that. A great one. <laughs> yep. I, I. That's my. That's my favorite as well. But uh, Chad, what about you? Ah, juicy fruit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was what over an hour into the movie when he finally did that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Chief's line is just great. It's his second line after thank you, but I just like. I like McMurphy's sentiment too when, uh, after failing to pick up the sink, and like, you know, everybody was kind of <laughs> laughing at him, and yep. he's like, I tried, At didn't least I? I tried, yeah. At least I tried. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. I've had that, I've had that sentiment before, mm-hmm. even, when, even when you've lost an argument or you've been totally outvoted, and you're like, I'm still right. But it, and I'm okay with going down, but I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not truly going down with my tail tucked between my legs. So um, I, 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 I related to that as well. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to call out: Have you seen the movie The Dream Team? Nope. It has Christopher Lloyd in it. He plays a mental patient, 
Okay. It has an angry Michael Keaton in it, and mm. he has an anger disorder who wears a leather jacket and can't deal with the world around him. And mm. it reminds me a great deal of Jack Nicholson's character. And there's a character who's a very soft-spoken, timid person who reminds me a lot of Cheswick. And they steal a van and go to a baseball game. Oh. And it's, a, it's wow. a, yeah, Peter Boyle's in it, and he thinks he's Jesus. There's no one-to-one comparison on that one. Okay. But I think the movie... <laughs> Uh, the Dream Team, which is hilarious, and I, I totally recommend it. Um, it's a comedy, it sounds like. Straight <laughs> up comedy. this one isn't. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's where they date it. Yeah, straight <laughs> comedy on that one. And I think that that movie drew a lot from this movie. Mm. Obviously being mental care and stuff like that as well, and then making light of a... What? Shooting it in a very different tone. What year was that? I'm going to guess late 80s, it so... Was, it was later on. Yeah. I feel like angry Michael Keaton is redundant. <laughs> <laughs> 89. 89. 89. 89, so I was... Yeah. Okay. Nice. Mark, is there anything that you want to plug or call out? Not really. Okay. No. Go to school. Go to class. <laughs> <laughs> school is cool. School is cool. <laughs> um, so uh, it's time for the show to give you a rating for this one. Mark, on a five-star scale with half-star intervals, what would you rate One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? I'm doing four and a half. Really? Was okay. originally five, but... The fishing scene really knocked it off for me. Uh, I just couldn't couldn't wrap my head around that whole. It was the dancing scene of singing it, in the rain. It really was. It really was. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> so four and a half. But okay. Great, great movie. Okay. And now, Chad, uh, what about you? Uh, what is your rating on a five star scale? Five stars. It's powerful. It's sad and a little too real for me at times. And I just think the performances are magnificent. I'm I'm with you guys, or well, I'm, sorry, I'm with I'm with Chad on this one. I'm gonna go five stars, and it's one of those movies that I saw in college, and I was like, "Phew, that's a lot to process," and I didn't feel the need to go back to it. It's not like you bring all your friends over on a Saturday night, and like, "Hey guys, let's watch one of the Nest." Right. Get some popcorn. We'll play. We'll play Monopoly afterwards. Um, it's not that kind of movie, but on the other hand, I'm really glad I returned to it, and uh, I'm. Glad that I picked it up for only three dollars. Nice. So I will be watching it again by virtue of owning it, and I won't. I won't be so slow to return to it. I didn't find it quite as sad in a way this time because I knew it was coming, mm-hmm. and I found what Chief did to be really compassionate. And if I was a vegetable. I would want somebody to smother me in the pillow for them. So um, it was a more beautiful symbolic ending for me in this one and so that helped it go down a lot better because i mean i did have this feeling of like all right we're having fun we're having fun and boy the movie turns on you (laughs) and the first time i watched it i i I had more sadness coming out of it and um this time i was able to take the whole thing in knowing where it came from and i I saw more beauty in it so uh five stars for me and it rewatches exquisitely well Mm -hmm. and um so yeah. timely. I think it's still so relevant today. In it so is. Many different ways. It is. Somewhere out there, there's a teacher, Mrs. Hannah, who, who is, <laughs> who is a nurse ratchet, and that's why it's yes. so timely. And she's still torturing high school students to this day. Um, <laughs> um, Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Sure thing. It is that time of year to share movies with your loved one, to celebrate love in general. Let's go with a romance movie. Option number one, Sleepless in Seattle from 1993. A recently widowed man's son calls a radio talk show in an attempt to find his father a partner. And option two, Love Actually from 2003 follows the lives of eight very different couples dealing with their love lives in variously loosely interrelated tales, very loosely, and interrelated tales all set to 
a frantic month before Christmas in London, England. And option number three, as good as it gets from 1997, a single mother and waitress, a misanthropic author and a gay artist form an unlikely friendship after the artist is assaulted in a robbery. In case you didn't get your Jack Nicholson film. I was going to say, we just did Jack Nicholson. Here's Johnny. I've never seen Sleepless in Seattle, so let's go with that one. Okay, okay. Good choice. Yep. Two insomniacs walking around the Space Needle. That's my, that's my <laughs> prediction for what this movie will be like. I haven't seen this either, so. <laughs> it's the only one I haven't seen. All right, so uh, new ground for next time. And Mark, thanks you so much for returning to the show. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank yes. you both. I you, love being here. This is, you pick great movies, man. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed this. One. Uh, and uh, Chad, thanks you as well. Yeah, always a good time, and I love getting to see new movies. Yeah, uh, new old movies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> new to me. Uh, if uh, all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable thank you so much for listening we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you subscribe rate and review on iTunes Spotify Stitcher Google Play wherever you get your podcasts those ratings and reviews help others find the show it helps us promote ourselves it's the best thing you can do it only takes about 30 seconds and it's a really big help uh, if you want to engage with us like us on Facebook we post every week we like to hear from you tell us why you didn't like uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest tell us why we're wrong tell us why we're right Follow us on Twitter at, at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. All one word. And we now have a Patreon page, so if you want to get a couple of bonus content pieces and uh, help support the show, podcasting is not free, and we appreciate whatever contribution you want to throw our way, so we have a Patreon page out there as well, so check us out on Patreon. So, as always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Chad? I think we got to get to the bottom of... R.P. McMurphy.